Good evening again. I want to start by reading you something. This is, uh, this is from a little story called Expedition to the Pole. It's by Andy Dillard. I'm just going to read you this little excerpt to start the sermon out. Why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? The tourists are having coffee and donuts on deck C. Presumably, someone is minding the ship, correcting the course, avoiding icebergs and shoals, fueling the engines, watching the radar screen, noticing weather reports radioed in from shore. No one would dream of asking the tourists to do these things. Alas, alas, among the tourists on deck seat, drinking coffee and eating donuts, we find the captain and all the ship's officers and all the ship's crew. And the officers chat, they swear, they wink a bit slightly at the raw jokes, just like regular people. The crew members have funny accents and the wind seems to be picking up. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, do we not really believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out where we can never return. The 18th century Hasidic Jews had more sense and more belief. One Hasidic slaughterer whose work required invoking the Lord bade a tearful farewell to his wife and children every morning before he set out for the slaughterhouse. He felt every morning that he would never see any of them again. For every day as he himself stood with the knife in his hand, the words of his prayer carried him into danger. After he called on God, God might notice and destroy him before he had time to utter the rest. Have mercy. Another Hasid, a rabbi, refused to promise a friend to visit him the next day. How can you ask me to make such a promise? This evening I must pray and recite, Hear, O Israel. When I say these words, my soul goes out to the utmost rim of life. Perhaps I shall not die this time either, but how can I promise to do something at a time after the prayer? I read that because the Hebrews preacher is telling us to pay attention. That's, that's how this week starts out. It says, don't drift away. If you recall, I mentioned last week that Hebrews is a sermon. It's, it's not a letter. It's a, it's a message that was written by one person to a group of people, a church, for whom that person is concerned. Uh, and the sermon begins with this epic beginning. Long ago, God spoke to his people through prophets. But in his majesty, he made himself a person to be the message. The message is God in human form, to be heard and seen in flesh. We were hopelessly estranged from him by our own doing, but instead of neglecting us, he grabbed us by our hearts with his radiant light, and he purified us from our sins. And the preacher gets our eyes fixed on Jesus in chapter 1. Fix your eyes on the goodness the power, the beauty of Jesus. Look! 
Look at Jesus, who came into the story of God's people, who came to you in the flesh. And then later, he's going to start telling us why we need to collectively march together towards Christ. After fixing our eyes on Jesus in chapter 1, this chapter is continuing by telling us, don't take your eyes off that mountain. There's a lot of sensory imagery in, in Hebrews. There's, there's uh, the hearing of thunder, and then there's like the seeing of mountains, and there's the hearing of voices. It's different than the other letters in the New Testament, uh, because the letters are aiming to explain ideas. They're using rhetoric to kind of take an idea and explain it. But Hebrews is telling a story. And when we, when we try to listen for those sounds and, and, and that the preacher's asking us to hear, when we try to see or imagine what the preacher's trying to have us uh, make an image of in our mind, uh, we're getting the full experience of the story. So in verse 2, for instance, where it says message, maybe in your translation, that's referring to the law of Moses. But in the Greek, instead of using the word law, namos, it uses the word logos. Uses the, the word for a message, because it's supposed to conjure up this not just the idea that there's a law, but that actually God's voice went out through the angels to Moses, bringing a message. So we're studying Hebrews as a story, and what the preacher's trying to get us to do is imagine ourselves in that story. And part of story is metaphor, and we're going to hit up against two metaphors today. Uh, The first is a boat metaphor, a warning against drifting. And we're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at why I think meritocracy and materialism, which I'll define later, are the things that make us drift away. So that's the boat metaphor. And then we're going to close by going back to a metaphor I mentioned last week, which is this pilgrimage metaphor. And and how the preacher is taking Psalm 8 to show that Christ is the founder, the pioneer, the trailblazer of the faith that we walk behind. This is the first of what's called the warning passages in Hebrews. I have to admit that when I decided I wanted to preach Hebrews, I, I spent a lot of time in seminary studying Hebrews, which I mentioned last week, but sometimes you get so focused on one thread that you might miss some of the other threads, and as I've been preparing the sermons, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a lot of warning passages. I did not remember that. So we're going to get through a couple of those in the next couple weeks, and they're they're intense. Uh, The preacher's telling us to be careful, lest we drift away. Uh, One scholar puts it this way, there had been a waning of faith amongst at least some of this church's members. The church as a whole had not matured as it should have done given that time. And they had forgotten how God actually addresses them as children. I mentioned last week that another scholar's take on Hebrews is that it's a community with a marked degree of inattentiveness that had led to a weakened church. So when we kicked off Hebrews last week, I was saying that we're going to spend the summer exploring whether we're just people who are affiliated with Christianity or whether we might want to be people who actually participate wholly in God's story. And I mentioned last week also that my spiritual life right now, it feels less like a pilgrimage and a little bit more like a phone booth, this passive spot that I step into from time to time to check in. So are we a people, like that one scholar said, who have a waning faith? 
slipping away, or are we invigorating each other to walk toward Christ in the way that we confess things, the way that we're vulnerable, the way that we point each other towards grace and truth? I do think it's both. I actually am so thankful that tonight we had the chance to pray for one another the way that we did, because those are the moments where I see that this church is a place where there is deep confession and deep vulnerability, and that means that, that we are walking but then we still struggle with these things that we tether our lives to throughout the week. So we're going to look a little bit into that. So chapter 2 begins to show us why the preacher is concerned for his community. I grew up around water. I lived on Long Island Sound when I was in middle school. And then I went to high school in Oregon and lived on a lake. And I did a lot of sailing and wakeboarding in, in those years. Um, when I was younger, I used to race these little boats called Optimists and there was so much freedom in sailing an optimist. They're only eight feet long. And when I was as young as 10, I could take my little vessel out onto the Long Island Sound and just cruise through the waters. It was invigorating uh, to be so young and yet have so much freedom. And then when I got older, I got to drive the big boats. And I got my, my license and I could take our boat out on the lake to go wakeboarding. And I love spending time on the water. But I'll tell you, there's something terrifying about a body of water if you have no wind or no engine propelling you. Or better yet, as our preacher reminded us, nothing to fix your vessel to. A boat with no paddle, no engine, no sail, no anchor is completely at the whim of the waters. And how does one get into that position? Does one make the intentional choice to go out on the water without an engine or without a paddle? Likely not. It's more likely that the hapless state of the vessel is the result of neglect or inattentiveness. So we end up like a powerless boat if we don't understand the conditions. That's what the Hebrews story is trying to tell us. How serious are we taking the task of navigating the waters? Here's what it's looked like for me. I used to be without a vocation, without a relationship, without a place to call my home. I lived in nine states and I moved 10 times before I was 30. I lived in three different time zones. I changed majors in college three times. I graduated knowing what I would be doing for the rest of my life, which is to be a working musician in Colorado. And then I quickly became a church intern in North Carolina. And then after that, I said, well, I'm not going to work for a church. I'll go be a barista in California. And then I moved to Massachusetts. And that's when I knew I'm going to be an academic. And it was confusing. But on the flip side, during all of those years of wandering around trying to figure things out, I knew my condition well. I had no illusion that my vocation or my romantic life or my residence were my stability. I could only find rest in Christ. I remember as a kid, there were times when I would tie my boat up to a buoy in the sound, and you assume, well, this buoy's anchored. But if you have a buoy that has a 20-foot line on it, and the depth is 30 feet, the anchor is basically jewelry. Maybe you close your eyes, and you catch a nap, only to wake up and find yourself in a shallow cove surrounded by rocks. 
You don't need to consciously reject the gospel to slip away from its fruits. And in my opinion, what's lost here, and this is really important, this is a a little bit theological, but this is important to note because this is going to come up in all the warning passages. What's lost here is not salvation. Okay, when, when the pastor is warning us against slipping away, it's not slipping away from salvation, but it's slipping away from the enjoyment of the gospel, of God's rest, which we're going to look at next week. His people, his place, his presence. And it seems more like a slow process of neglect. So we're going to get back to this drifting metaphor, uh, not just this week, but also later in Hebrews, uh, in chapter 6, when it's going to actually say that we need to find our anchor in Christ. But right now, what Hebrews 2.3 is pointing out is that we, by nature, hook ourselves up to buoys whose anchor have too short a line. That's our modus operandi. We have to resist neglecting to anchor our souls to Christ. Does that make sense? We have to resist not anchoring our souls to Christ. We do the opposite of that. That's how we go. We don't naturally anchor to Christ. Our momentum is to always drift. My friend calls this lifestyle creep. I thought that as I got older, I would automatically become closer and more securely anchored to Christ. But I'm finding that that's actually more difficult with age. There's more buoys to anchor to, more idols to worship. And I feel like I've boarded a powerless boat with no anchor. For a church like ours, full of urban professionals, uh, I think that it's easy for us to slowly drift into a cove that I like to call materialism and meritocracy. And I see that principally in myself. So I'm sorry if I'm just uh, trying to apply the sermon to myself alone, but I need this medicine. And this is what Hebrews is really drawing out in me. Uh, let me define those, since I think they apply to our community, especially me. Meritocracy is a big word for the belief that we're entitled to and that our identity rests in our skills and efforts being rewarded by the world around us. And materialism, as I'm using it here, is placing a high value on our stuff and our physical comforts. So for us, I think, at least I, easily drift from an identity in Christ like I had when I was wandering around, not knowing what I was going to do for a living or where I was going to live. And I've drifted from that identity in Christ to, an, to making an anchor and placing in high value all my skills and wanting my efforts to be recognized and rewarded and placing high value on physical comfort. I mentioned David Brooks last week. He says the meritocracy gives you brands to attach to, your prestigious school, your nice job title, which work well as status markers, but they replace the urgent need to find out who you are. When I first became a Christian, I was so desperate for an identity in Christ because I was impoverished in my identity. I had nowhere else to get it. I had nothing that was fulfilling me spiritually, emotionally. I didn't know who my people were or my place was, so I ran to God's people, I ran to God's place, I ran to God's presence. And some of you are actually right there, right now. And I'm sure that you feel restless, those of you who are aching 
for vocational satisfaction or a sense of place or a desire to know who your people are, that is a really hard place to be, and I think there's a lot of you who are in that category as well. Let me just say to you, the wilderness is hard, but it is also a much easier place to enjoy God. So don't take that for granted. Those aches and pains to find your identity, those are the aches and pains that end up driving us to the meritocracy, towards upward mobility, towards wage growth, and settling for material comfort and looking good, okay? But if you resist those, this is the time in your life when you can be really pushed to find your identity in Christ. So let those terrible aches thrust you towards him, lest you have to be called back by a preacher saying, you've hooked up to the wrong anchor, stop drifting away. Or, like you become a pastor, and then you're the one that's going to have to preach that, even though you feel like a hypocrite, because it's your story. I feel like for myself and for some of my friends, we've traded the search for Christ's identity for the meritocracy. More than ever, I just want my life to be comfortable. That is lifestyle creep. I just assume I'm anchored to Christ, so I take a nap. And I daydream about how I want my house to look, and what car I want to drive, and how I can be more impressive to people. Or I pout because I don't feel like I'm getting those things, and I see other people getting them. I want recognition. I want friendships the way that I want them to be. And these warning passages in Hebrews, when you read them and you're in that place, they can sound like they're saying to you, well, then shape up. Do a better job. We're going to get more into this as we go through these warning passages, especially when we get to Hebrews 6. Uh, But I, I don't want you to hear it as shape up. I don't want to hear it as, uh, I don't want you to hear it as, you better stop doing this stuff, okay? This paragraph in Hebrews is not telling us, you better improve your spiritual outcome. It's asking us to wake up from the nap and be sober about the cove that we're, we're in. It's not asking you to change what you're doing. It's just asking you to be aware of your surroundings. We're not cruising on smooth waters. We need to be anchored to something sure in the midst of a storm. So I ask you, what story are you telling yourself? Is it one of entitlement? I deserve this or that. I'm frustrated that I'm not getting that. Or is it one of brokenness? I need my life sheltered in the story of Jesus. The lapping of waves against a hull can really lull you into a nice afternoon slumber. And that can be very refreshing in the short term. A good nap on a boat, if you've ever had one, is pretty hard to beat. So are meritocracy and materialism in the short term. But it's quickly ruined when you wake up and find that you are about to run ashore or crash into some rocks. So take stock of where you are. Have you been lulled asleep by the idea that you deserve some recognition or some physical comfort? Perhaps that's even led to bitterness in your heart because of loneliness or a lack of acknowledgement from other people. I have let this story come into my heart. And that is, that's not healthy. 
And I think that's the reason that uh, our society is very unhealthy. Our society is desperately lonely, and mental health issues have never been worse. I mentioned that last week. And I want you to hear that the solution is not to punish ourselves for these idols, for these false stories. The, the story today is actually saying, you want to you unshackle yourself? you want to uncleat yourself from an anchor that is doing nothing for you because that is on offer to you? These are faulty anchors that we hook up to. And they seem fine when we're having the great nap. It's only after we've drifted slowly that we realize, and I didn't bring a paddle out here. So verses 1 through 4, they tell us to pay attention because we're going to drift. The question is whether we're anchored to Christ. And that's what verses 5 through 9 are about. That Christ is the one that solves this dilemma. One of the commentators I read says this, We're overwhelmed by a sense of frustration and bewilderment and general loss of direction in life. We ask about the purpose of living. Do we exist merely in order to eat, drink, sleep, work, and die? Or is there meaning to life? Why are we here in this world? So skillfully, using a well-known passage in Psalm 8, our author reminds his readers that man is not as he was meant to be. In, uh, in verse 10, right after it starts uh, expositing through Psalm 8, we see that Christ is the source of our salvation, or your translation might say the founder or the pioneer of faith. The Greek word there uh, is used often to describe like the founder of something or the head of a clan. Uh, and I want to paraphrase it, and this is, you know, this is within the scope of this, this word and its use in Greek. It's called archaeos. And I want to paraphrase it as trailblazer. So now we've moved from this boat metaphor, and we're back to the, to the trek, the pilgrimage, the hiking metaphor, okay? And we have this Psalm 8 section, and we've got this, uh, this founder, this pioneer, this trailblazer, who we're walking behind, Okay? We're sojourners on a journey to Mount Zion, the city of God, the place where we see him clearly, where we rest in him completely. And we're not there yet, but the preacher is trying to help us fix our eyes once again on that destination. We start with the boat metaphor, don't be drifting away. Now, follow the trailblazer. I think trailblazer is a helpful image because two things are at play with Psalm 8 here. If you, didn't put, if you, if you can't see it in your Bible, uh, it said, when it says, you know, someone once said, uh, that is quoting Psalm 8. And the original reading of Psalm 8, when people were reading it, like the Israelites, when they were reading Psalm 8, they were saying, hey, this is about us. This is about humans. We were created, little creatures, needing our nourishment and our friendship from God alone. And he was there with us. The good and powerful God of all. Moving around the garden with his, cre- his creatures. We're a part of creation. But also, he's trusted us with it. That's how they read it. 
When we read it, and I think probably when they read it too, even if they understood it to be about themselves, they didn't have the alternative reading that I'm going to get to in a moment yet. But when we all read that, we think, yeah, that's just us. That's just, we're just hanging out with God. And he's like, you guys are doing a great job. I'm going to let you be in charge of this place. We just, something in us just says, I don't know if that's right. Do you ever read one of these Psalms where it's about a human and you just, it's like, I'm doing everything right. And yet I'm just getting killed out here. And you just read that and you're like, I can't identify with that. That's when we start to realize like, well, yes, it, that Psalm was written about you. It was written about humans. The problem is we're not living in that rightly. That's what Hebrews is starting to illuminate. We need someone else to go before us and fix that. Because we're not living out the fullness of humanity right now. When you read a psalm and it begins, when you read this psalm, Psalm 8, and it begins with a nursing child that's one day going to be trusted with all of God's good creation, and then it zooms out wider to the whole cosmos with stars and moon in mind, we see that God has given us, his little children, the power to explore and care for and use this whole expanse. What a gift. And yet, when we start thinking about it, when we think about ourselves, you think, I I don't live in that. My propensity is toward lifestyle creep, toward naps on unanchored boats and pilgrimage on a trail of meritocracy. How can this be about us? Well, the answer is that it is about us, but it's also about Christ. No, we're not living into this well. We need a pioneer to live that life for us. I don't mean, and this is really important that you hear this, I don't mean to model it for us, okay? It's not like, oh, well, we just need to start living like Jesus, and then we'll get back on this trail. I literally mean that we need a trailblazer to go before us because we cannot go down the path that is needed. We are incapable of it. We need someone else to push back the brush and the barriers that are holding us back. We cannot find or make the trail to God ourselves. That's why the Hebrews preacher uh, takes us to Psalm 8 and helps us see how Christ, the only perfect human, can fulfill it. He allows the thorns of the trail to prick him as he bushwhacks a path for us to walk through without pain. And what is the brush through which our pioneer bushwhacked? That's what verses uh, 10 through 18 are fleshing out. There's a Sufi and Stephen song called Fourth of July. And it shows an imaginary conversation between himself and his late mother. She struggled with uh, some pretty serious mental health issues and alcoholism before she left the family when he was really young. And I'm speculating at the meaning of this song. Uh, but this, this is how I interpret it. Uh, throughout the song, she keeps calling him these nicknames, like my little hawk, my little dove, my dragonfly, my little Versailles. And she asks him these questions. Why are you crying? Were you loved? Do you want to look at the moon with me? It's as if she was there, present, being a doting mother. But she wasn't. I think... What he's saying is that he suspects that she wanted well for him, that she wanted to be there for him. But she also missed that chance on this side of death. 
We all, like her, follow the muse of our selfish thirsts. And in those moments, we just kind of act like, I think I'll eventually get there. and It's going to be okay. I don't really need to pay attention to where I am right now. As if we have no mortality. But the song returns on and off to this phrase and then just ends with it going over and over and over and over again. We're all going to die. It's just haunting and so sad to think about his mom not ever getting to live into that vocation he thinks she wished she could have. And that's why I just want to say, are we stuck? Do we ignore our mortality? Because death will close in on each of us. And do we want to, at that time, be tethered to these lame anchors? We busy ourselves with thoughts of lifestyle and merit, or at least, like I said, I do. And Hebrews is saying, remember the story. Remember the story that you live in, the right story. There's the boat metaphor in the text. It's cautioning us not to drift like untethered boats toward danger or demise. And there's this wilderness metaphor that's calling us to trek behind our trailblazer, pioneer to the mountain of God, fixing our eyes on the destination at all times. And so it's fitting that the God who made everything would be the only one capable of restoring order to the disorder that we create. He restores us by calling us into his family and his brothers and sisters, Hebrews 2 says. We're captive to death, all of us, but we need not be without him in this life or eternity. We're flesh and blood, and like Psalm 8 says, he loves our flesh and blood. He made it with dignity and beauty. And for some reason, we humans are considered special creatures, hovering in the same realm of significance as angels. And then I don't know why this is in there, but it says that angels fall away from God too. But in verse 16, it says that he's taken special care to rescue us. I don't know how the angels read that. Like, I feel like, you know, when we get to heaven, the angels are going to look at us and just be like, these guys, they get get so much attention, they don't even deserve it. Therefore, he had to make himself like our brothers and sisters. He didn't make himself an angel, he made himself a human. And he passed through human suffering and death before us. It says in verse 1 that God can be heard. So he must be saying something to us. And it says in verse 7 that he moved toward us. And he took on the human experience to its fullest. So he must be close. So if you can cross the bridge to agree with me that this life is not all satisfying. It is not complete freedom from brokenness. Then maybe you can agree with me that we need rescue from loneliness and striving and apathy toward the powerful soul that we carry around with us always. We see in verses 9 and 14 that instead of being left to our own devices, the God who speaks and moves towards us, moves towards us, walked toward the brutality of evil and death that we might be shielded from it. So what say you? Shall we chase stuff and merit and bitterness and bickering. After all, he was already pricked by the thorns and slain by the tree. 
to clear our path to God. So shall we instead follow him?